Good morning, Grace. We are back in Luke, so if you'll open your Bibles to Luke 7 while you're opening. I, I hung out on the patio for the first few songs. It's a party out on the patio. I'm tempted to look out there, but when I'm speaking to the patio, I'm here. I'm thinking in the patio, we should have like a name for the patio. Like in a lot of stadiums, they have like that rowdy crowd, like in the end zone or something. They show up, rain or shine. They stay to the end of the game, even if it's extra innings. Our, our, the people in the patio, they kind of, they bring their own chairs. They sit wherever they want. It's kind of like general hooligan behavior out there. It's a little bit crazy. Like, it's, it, they call in the, uh, the Cleveland Browns have the dog pound. The Oakland Raiders have the, I think it's called the black hole where people like dress up. And so I don't know, maybe we need a name for the patio. I'll let the patio name themselves. Like maybe the courtyard crazies or the patio parishioners or something like that. But patio, thank you for, thank you for allowing me to join you this morning. All right, we are in Luke 7, and it's a relatively simple story, and it's a, it's a story that we're familiar with. So what I'm going to do first is we're going to ask God for help. We're going to read the passage, and then we're going to dive in. So let's go to the Lord. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, we have a simple prayer. Help us. Help us to understand Help us to focus. Um, help us to not merely intellectually understand your word, but that you would pierce. Some of us are, are, are walking in this morning with hearts of stone or watching um, from home. Um, and we lack faith, and this is a passage about faith. So we pray that the Spirit would work alongside the word and literally generate faith in this next 30, 35 minutes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Luke 7, starting at verse 1 through 10. After he had finished all his sayings and the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him to the elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I will not presume to come to you, but say the word... And let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Well, as I've been thinking about this text over the last few weeks, I've, I've, I've been thinking about the surprising nature of this story. 
And it, with this, I, I think I'm about 50-50 for when I preach, bringing in a Western as part of my example. I think it's just sort of part of my deal, so I'm going to stick with that. So I have a general Western in mind that actually set the stage as far as Westerns go for surprise, and it's Dances with Wolves from 1990. And if you're an aficionado of Westerns and you're watching the first, so back in the 90s, so some of you don't even know this, back in the 90s, you would just go to the movie. You wouldn't get on YouTube and watch five trailers before you went to the movie. Like you wouldn't go, you wouldn't like go to Rotten Tomatoes and see like what thousands of people who somehow got to watch it early say about the movie. You just sort of went to the movie and you just kind of, at, at my little theater in my little town in Oklahoma, I don't know how many of you who are 40 plus this, I want to see a, a show of hands. Do you remember going to a movie, and before any trailer started, the national anthem came on the screen with a flag? Anybody else saw that? Oh, a couple of us. Yeah, must be small-town America types. I'd love to know those of us. But anyway, no one, when I went, would stand and, and, and pledge allegiance thing, but the national anthem would come on, and then they have a couple of trailers, and the movie would just start, and you didn't know what was coming. You just watched the movie. So if you went to Dances with Wolves in the 90s, you'd see the fact that there's a soldier at an outpost. And then you would see that nearby are Native Americans. And back then we'd call them Indians, but now we call them Native Americans. And my wife and my two daughters are members of a Native American tribe. But not only, if you really knew Westerns, not only were they Native Americans, they were Lakota. Lakota were bad dudes. Lakota, you didn't mess with the Lakota. And so you're sitting there thinking, oh, this is gonna get good. This is going to be good. There is going to be some serious battles between the cavalry and the Lakota in this movie. And if anyone knows, it's a 32-year-old movie. I don't guess you can spoil a 32-year-old movie. Is that right, 32? Yeah, I think so. Uh, essentially, the thing that's surprising about Dances with Wolves is that the majority of the movie is told from the perspective of the Native Americans. So all of a sudden, the character that you meet as the Lakota warriors, who you're convinced from all your past experience of watching Westerns are the bad guys, end up becoming the good guys. And it's revolutionary. People still talk about that as a film that sort of opened the options of this sort of new perspective on understanding. It's, now it's, it's, it's all around our culture now, but it was, it was a very early perspective of, hey, this is a different twist on an old story. Think of two other Oscar award-winning films, all from right around the time I was anywhere from six to 14 years old. So you could tell the, 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 the mark these movies had, but E.T., the extraterrestrial, same thing. Aliens are supposed to be the bad guys, but no, this E.T. is the friendly alien. And the third Oscar award-winning film I'm thinking about, obviously, is Harry and the Hendersons. I thought it was gonna be a joke. It actually didn't win an Oscar. It won one for makeup. I, was, I actually double-checked. I thought, before I make the joke, I should make sure it didn't win an Oscar. It did win an Oscar, surprisingly. But a Sasquatch is supposed to be a bad guy, and in Harry and the Henderson, the Sasquatch is also friendly. So why am I talking about movies from 30 years ago? Because in this passage, I think we have something similar happening that when the first few verses hit and we meet a centurion, a soldier, we automatically think bad guy. What's he going to do? What, what is wrong? That's the surprise of this passage is that not only is this centurion someone that Jesus actually reaches out to, this entire section right after the, 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 the Sermon on the Plain is, is an example where Luke's showing us that Jesus is going to the outcast 
And the first outcast that we see is this non-Jewish Gentile soldier, a person of some means and of authority. And it's a surprise to us because we wouldn't expect for Jesus to say at the end of the passage what Jesus says about this person that we would not expect to be a person of faith. That not only does he have faith, but not even in Israel have I found such faith. Actually, in the context of of Luke... It's not as surprising as I would have thought. Luke, probably because he's moving towards Acts and the story of the church growing, particularly the Gentiles being grafted into the church, Luke specifically talks about centurions and multiple times in a positive light. We have in Acts 10 the story of Cornelius. More than one gospel account, we have the centurion that's at the cross who says, surely this is the Son of God. But it's particularly surprising what captured me, this passage, is particularly surprising not just because he's a centurion, not just because the culture that you find the centurion in is in many ways has some similarities to our exact culture now, right? The first thing we learn about this culture is that he owns a servant. He has a slave. The centurion is a person of wealth, of means, of oppression. There's some religious tension between the Gentiles and the Jews, obviously. As Eric Twisselman said about a week ago when I was talking to him about this passage, he said, you could easily see Jesus, maybe the point of the passage being Jesus saying, we need to defund the centurions. But you don't see that here. You see Jesus moving towards the outcast, and even in this case, the outcast is a representative of the oppression, a representative of wealth. It's particularly surprising, the centurion, at this point in Luke to me, because it comes right on the heels of the Beatitudes. Look back at the Beatitudes in 20 and 21. Blessed are you who are poor. Yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry, for now you shall be satisfied. The centurion's not poor. He's not hungry. Look at the, the woes. Woe to you who are rich. You have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now. You shall be hungry. It, it, it wouldn't have been as surprising to me if the centurion who, with, who has the sick servant sends his entourage to Jesus, and Jesus says, whoa, 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 woe to you. Woe to you, you who are rich. Woe to you. You're full. I didn't come for you. But that's not what we see. We see incredible compassion of Jesus. So, very quick overview of the text. We just read it. It's a very simple story. Um, Jesus has finished preaching. Jesus is now coming back into the city. This centurion has a servant. The text tells us that the centurion is sick to the point of death. He's highly valued by the centurion. The centurion hears about Jesus. He sends this sort of group. It's, it's Jewish. It's, we think it's probably just like local Jewish leaders to go to Jesus. So he doesn't go himself. And these, this local Jewish sort of entourage uh, goes and says, hey, he's worthy, Jesus. He's worthy for you to go heal this servant. That's, that's the message that they take. He's asking you to come, and now we're chipping in our two cents worth, and we're telling you this is a worthy man. 
Jesus, I love one of my favorite sentences in the passage is verse 5, and Jesus went with them. It's almost like, yeah, you don't really have to twist my arm. I'm in the business of healing people, so I'm going to go. So Jesus just went with them. And on the way, he, apparently he sends a second group of friends, a second sort of entourage. He says, you know, you don't have to come in, Jesus. Don't worry about it. I get it. I understand authority. And you are a person of authority, and just say the word. My servant will be healed. Jesus marvels. Very few times, marvel is a word that all the gospels, specifically Luke, loves to use for people's response to Jesus. People are constantly marveling at the marvelous Jesus. Jesus doesn't marvel at other people very often. In all the gospels, the only two times we explicitly have Jesus marveling is this story of him marveling at this man's faith, and then at the story of Jesus marveling when he's back in Nazareth at the lack of faith by those people. Marvel's a big word. Uh, when Peter and Luke leaves the tomb and it's empty, he goes home marveling. You can't be much more amazed than Peter would have been in that moment. When Jesus appears before the disciples, they marvel at his resurrected body. This is a dense, packed word. So Jesus marvels at this man's faith. And then he turns to the crowd He's, he's, he's using this as, an, as a moment of teaching, and he says, I'm telling you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when they get home, the servants will. So here's how we're going to tackle the text. Uh, we're, we're going to dig in first to this question of worthy, because worthy has a fun play here in the text. I don't know if you noticed it when I read it, but when the, when the Jewish leaders come to Jesus and they're trying to sort of coax him and, and prod him into granting this man's wish, they say he's worthy. And then Jesus is on his way, and did you pick up on what the, what the centurion himself says in verse Six, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. And there's some religious and cultural things going on there. We'll, we'll, we'll discuss those quickly. But here's the first question I want us to think through. Is he worthy or is he not worthy of receiving this miraculous work from the Lord. Is he worthy or is he not worthy? And what we're going to do is we're going to do a character study of the centurion from what we see in the text, and it's pretty easy and it can go pretty quick. What do we know about the centurion? Well, here's the things we know about him. What we're going to do is we're going to classify the things we know, and then we're going to highlight those of the, which of those Jesus is most impressed by. First thing we know about the centurion from verse 1 is that he's wealthy, at least wealthy enough to have a servant. It's highly likely, commentators say, that the centurion was not actually in an official. centurion is someone who oversees 100 soldiers. Uh, archaeologists and people that study the history don't think that there was an official garrison in this part of the country at that point in time. But it wasn't uncommon for centurions to sort of almost get like kind of hired out. So he might not have been on official duty, but he was responsible for soldiers. That's why he's called a centurion. So regardless, he's, he's being paid well for this position, well enough that he has authority, which we see later and this servant. The second thing we know about his character, and, and, and at first read, you don't know, why is, this, why is the servant so highly valued by the centurion? Is it merely sort of a means to an end? 
I like my breakfast at 6 a.m. and the centurion or the servant's sick and I have to wait till 7. Like it doesn't, it seems like that's one way to interpret it. But given what the Jews are saying, the Jewish leaders are saying about this man, we can, let's give him a, a gracious interpretation that he's highly valuing the servant because he cares for the servant. He's a compassionate man. We also know that he's respectful of Jewish culture. We know that from whenever these leaders, they say, he is worthy to have you do this. He loves our nation. There's some discussion of whether this person might have actually been a Gentile convert to Judaism, but this language, particularly right here, leads us to believe, no, he's probably more of just someone, he's still a Gentile, but he lives among the Jews and he respects their culture so much so that the very next thing we learn about him from their what they say is that he is the one who helped us build our synagogue. Most likely that means he gave money. He's generous with his money, so he's not only wealthy, he's generous, and not only generous, generous specifically to this group of people of which he does not belong. But the real point of the passage are the last two characterizations that we learn about the centurion. One of them is that he's humble. And you see his humility quite clearly uh, whenever he tells Jesus, I'm not worthy to have you come do this. There's discussion. People, so let's say it this way. It is a fact that Jewish people could not enter into the home of a non-Jewish person, a Gentile person, without having uh, a, a, a cleansing Right? And we see this particularly in Acts 10 with Cornelius. So some people say, well, maybe he, because he was respectful of the Jewish culture, the centurion, he recognized, you know what, if Jesus comes into my house, uh, that's going to, that's, that's, it's not something he should have to do. So I'm going to, I'm going to save him from having to do that. I'm going to sort of say, you don't have to come in. You can just say the word. But one argument that I read that, that I really like, and I think there's something to it, is if that were the case, there's not much of an explanation of the second part. So he not only says in verse 6, Lord, don't trouble yourself. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. But in verse 7, there's a second clue, and that is, therefore, I did not presume to come to you. So there wouldn't have been any problem with the Jewish-Gentile relations for him to come to Jesus, but it seems like his attitude is not so much of, I don't want you to be defiled. It is, I'm not worthy to have interaction with you, whether it's in my house or on the street. Right? It's, it's a statement of humility. It's a statement of acknowledgement of Jesus' proper place. And in that way, it would be a very similar statement, almost an identical statement to what we get from Peter in Luke 5, right after the miraculous catch of fish. Remember that one? Peter, <laughs> I'm not worthy. John the Baptist says in early Luke, one is coming after me whose sandal I'm not worthy to unstrap. So I think one of the things that's going on here is, is a highlighting of this centurion's humility. Yes, there are some defilement issues, but it seems like because he's equally nervous about coming out, he's like, despite what these Jewish leaders are saying, that I'm worthy, I'm telling you, Jesus, I'm not worthy. But the, the sixth characterization is the one that Jesus primarily notices, and that is his faith. 
Understandable. That's the whole point of the passage. The point of the passage is driving quite clearly. There's not a lot of places to lose track in this passage of what the point is. This is one of those passages that's pretty easy. You read it. You close it. You say, what was that passage about in your daily reading time? It's like, I think it was about faith. Yeah, that's what it's about. It's about the faith of the centurion. Because what he's saying here about the authority points ultimately to what he's displaying about his faith. So he says, hey, Jesus, you don't have to come out here. You don't have to come to my house. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And at first blush, that might not sound like a humble statement, huh? It might sound like, hey, Jesus, uh, you may not know this, but I'm kind of a big deal. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's saying, Jesus, I get it. I get it. I'm under authority. You're under authority. When I tell people to do things, they do things. Kenny, very helpfully, it's great preaching at this church because you get guys who are better preachers than you sending you texts on Wednesday with little, hey, here's my little thought. And it's like, oh, my word, that was amazing. I would have never picked up on that by myself. Thank you. It's really great. So Kenny gave me this really great, Rob Lister, I think his last sermon read like, you know, the entire Kenny text. I was like, I can't do that this time. So I've got to, I have to explain it because Rob stole that from me. But Kenny's point was really well stated. And he said, that, his, that the Spirit had brought upon Kenny the notion that this, this statement of authority, right? Hey, when I tell people to go, they go. When I tell people to come, they come. And Jesus, you have similar authority. That it's not merely about authority. It's also his humility of recognizing, I don't have authority to heal my servant. Right? In other words, it's a self-awareness statement, isn't it? It's like, hey, I have some authority. I can tell 100 people what to do. And they'll do it because that's their job. But I have a problem. Even though I'm a man of authority, my authority is, is somewhat limited. It's somewhat restricted because there's a, a problem outside of my realm of authority. My servant who I care for is almost to death, and I can't do anything about it. Humility, self-awareness, recognition. Just because I'm really good at this doesn't mean I'm good at this. And, and what I love about it is, Jesus, my authority is restricted to here, but you, you, this is where the faith comes, isn't it? You have the authority. You have broader authority. You have authority over my servant's body. That's faith. It's pretty amazing when you think that this man has, if nothing else, heard only reports of Jesus, has unlikely to have, have met Jesus or heard Jesus' teaching himself. We don't have any record of it, at least. But yet, just from hearing the reports, right, just without even seeing him, without even physically standing in front of Jesus, he has this faith to say, just say the word. It's my favorite the other, you know, just, when I think about these passages, I get little hooks in the text. And one hook in this one is, just say the word. Jesus, just say the word and he'll be healed. I give it. Jesus' response to this, to this incredible faith, you have authority over things that no one would think any human should have authority over, that no human should have authority over. The fact that he recognizes Jesus' authority in this realm of the body shows that he recognizes that Jesus is something other. Jesus' response 
to this merger, right? So it's not merely his faith. It's really what's, what causes Jesus to marvel is this combination, this one-two punch of humility and faith that we see modeled so well in the centurion. Humble faith causes Jesus to marvel. Oh, Lord, help us. Give us the ability to have humble faith in whatever we're walking through. Help us to have Jesus marvel at our faith because we're meeting the circumstances of our life with humility and trust simultaneously, just like this man. So Jesus' claim is, is a striking claim, isn't it? Jesus' claim is, uh, there's no one that I've seen with this faith, even in Israel. So I, I thought about that just a little bit. It's like, okay, well, we're only seven chapters into Luke, and we've already seen, in my estimation, some pretty radical examples of faith. I think of the leper. In, in, well, let's talk about the disciples in five. Jesus says, cast out your nets. The professional fishermen are like, Jesus, we've been fishing. There's no fish out there, but we'll do it anyway. That took faith. They left everything and followed Jesus. That seemed to take a lot of faith. The leper walks up to Jesus in 5, 13, <laughs> and 12, and he says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Like uninvited by Jesus, he walks up to Jesus and says, you can do this. That seemed to take a lot of faith. What about the friends of the paralyzed man who bring him and drop him down? Their faith is if we can just get our friend to Jesus, he can do this. What about the man with the withered hand? His hand is like this, and Jesus says, stretch out your hand. And at some level in this man's brain, he had to obey the command to do the impossible. I can't stretch my hand out, Jesus. It's the one thing I cannot do. Didn't it take incredible faith for that man to obey that command, to stretch out his hand? So I'm thinking, well, I trust Jesus' faith uh, radar or his faith mechanism of testing more than my own. Whatever it is, his faith measurement tool is better than my faith measurement tool. So I'm going to trust that there's absolutely something there. So let's just conjecture. It's always a little frightening to do, but here's my conjecture. I've been trying to think a little bit, okay, what's different about this man's faith? Well, one thing that's slightly different about it up until this point in the text is he comes to Jesus and says, you don't have to be physically present to heal. It reminds, I'm going to call it presumptuous faith, right? Like Jesus hasn't yet told him, oh, I can do these miracles from a distance, right? He's the one that says, wait, 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 add it up. Jesus, you should be able to do this from a distance, it reminds me of the woman, the woman with the discharge of blood. And, and, and when she, she reaches, remember, he, Jesus is moving through the crowd, and she reaches out to touch him, and Jesus is like, whoa, who touched me? And in Matthew, she says, it's, Matthew tells us explicitly that she told herself, if I can only reach and touch his garment, I can be healed. That's presumptuous. It's a presumptuous faith. Now, we think of presumptuous as something negative, most likely, but I also think, well, but this is presumptuous in the best kind of way. So we've got four high school teenage kids, one's in college. Three of our four do not yet drive legally, but all three of those four want to live around the world as if they're normal high school-age kids. 
That means dad gets to be an unpaid Uber driver. Because I'm an unpaid Uber driver, I'm often not only picking up my own three high school kids, I'm picking up some of your high school kids along with my high school kids and not to mention other people's high school kids who don't attend Grace. And here's my point is my kids can ask me to go pick them up and drive them places in a way that's not presumptuous because I love them because they're my kids. Whereas if some of your kids said, hey, Mr. Oaks, on the way home, would you mind, let's just drive to Brea. I'd kind of like to go out to the mall. Could you take me out to the mall on my way from your house to here and just go, you know, 30 minutes out of your way? That would be presumptuous for your kids to say to me, and I would notice it. That's presumptuous. Some of your kids I would notice it less because you're, I would notice it less because you're in the family. But if my kids say that, I might say no, but I'm not going to think of it as presumptuous. Why? Because I love them because they're my kids. In fact, specifically for my sons, I kind of wish they'd do it more often. I kind of wish they'd say, hey, dad, can you do this for us? Sometimes I think, is Jesus like that with me? Is he sitting there every now and then saying, kind of wish he'd ask me more often in faith for things. I wonder sometimes if God, the Father, and Jesus are saying, has Jason in his theology somehow convinced himself that he shouldn't ask for the things that he wants from his Father, good things? Has he somehow talked himself out of, well, I don't know if it's going to be God's will or not, therefore I'm not going to just go to my dad and ask. It's part of, part of the lesson here is Let's have a presumptuous faith with a disclaimer, obviously, that the very best thing to grab on faith are the promises of Jesus. I'm a little bit nervous that somebody could go do something crazy tomorrow and then blame it on me for claiming it to be presumptuous, right? Well, he told me to be presumptuous, so whatever, fill in the blank. So the very best place to place our faith is on the promises that we have in Scripture, but it there are this, there's this part as I've, been, as I've been thinking about this this week to think, I think I need to be more like the centurion. I think I need to be more like the woman. I think I need to be more presumptuous. I need to recognize that Jesus and the Father love me and they want me to share with them what I would love, what I feel like I need, what I feel like I want. Let's have a say the word faith that models itself after the the centurion, just say the word, Jesus. It'll be done. So at this point, I think we've really kind of hit the primary point of the text. The primary point of the text is obviously this man's faith and how we can model our faith after him. And, and at this point in the text, there's, there's been some benefits of looking at the passage in exactly the way we have. One of the primary benefits is we can say, hey, how does my faith measure up to this man's faith. Not to mention Israel, but do I have this kind of faith? And that's beneficial to us to consider that. But I also think up until this point, 29 minutes into the sermon, we've been roughly man-centered in the way we've examined this passage. What have we done? We've done a character study of this man, and we've sort of turned it on us in, in all good ways, and I think ways that the text is exactly telling us to do. Hey, be like this man. But if we ended there, some of you, maybe many of you would leave and say, I'm not like him. Oh, man, I don't have faith like that. 
this is when I'll probably cry. I took a meal to Karen Kuntz this week. And I, and I prayed with her. And while I was praying, she started crying and she just, she spoke a blessing upon me at the end of the prayer. And then we, we cried together, the two of us. Dave Kuntz struggled with cancer for a long time with an incredible amount of faith. But there might be some people here that are struggling with something more or less troublesome in your life, and you're doing it, you feel like, with less faith than the centurion or than Dave Kuntz. And so I want to spend this last few minutes to say, we don't want to focus so much on the man-centeredness of this passage that we sort of coach ourselves into do better, do better, do better. Then we walk out and we realize some of us just aren't, aren't there right now. I think it was almost 10 years ago that I was sitting, I was sitting right around there, and uh, we had just, we'd come back from a trip from Oklahoma and New Mexico, and as soon as the bass drum hit, something happened in my inner ear, and I'm not exaggerating, I was dizzy for years. Varying levels of dizziness, varying levels of tendonitis, varying levels of, and there was a time period in there in which the, uh, I didn't even know if professionally I could keep doing the things at that time that I was doing. I, 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 it was becoming an incredible hindrance. Now, many of you have, Physical, mental, psychological, spiritual things going on in your life, similar to that or worse, right? But my point is, is that my response to that in my life was not as faith-filled as Dave Kuntz's was to his cancer or as to the centurion's was to this. That my response to that occurrence in my life lacked faith as I look back on it. You might be there now, thinking of, Noah Litzall and the Litzall family. And Noah going back on the transplant list just this very weekend. That if we only can look at Noah Litzall and say, be like the centurion, have faith. That's a needed and necessary admonition, but we need to have more. And that's the good news is this passage gives us exactly what we need. And that is, at the end of the day, the amount of faith that we have is not nearly as important as the object upon which we're placing that faith. So the real point is not so much, oh, look how much faith the centurion has. It's look who the centurion placed his faith in, Jesus. That's the beautiful part. And we can ask this question, is the centurion worthy of Jesus doing this or not? But here's the great part. Jesus is definitely worthy of you placing your faith in him. Jesus is definitely worthy. We need to recognize that we don't want to just have a man-centered understanding of this passage. Okay, here's what the centurion did. Be like the centurion. We can say, okay, there's something deeper. Don't point me to the centurion primarily. Point me to Jesus when I lack faith. Because that's what will build my faith. There are times, aren't we all, aren't there are times that we're utterly hopeless on our own to just generate faith. What do we do? We cast our eyes upon Jesus. Oh, Jesus, help me have more faith. And when I place my faith in the appropriate place and I place my faith in the correct object, it doesn't matter how much faith I have, it's going to be secure. 
used to use this illustration for a class that I taught regularly on worldviews. And I used the point of, it doesn't matter how much faith you have, it matters what you place your faith in. And so imagine a chasm, a canyon that you have to get across, and there's two different bridges. And the first bridge is sturdy, and it's time-tested, and it's wooden, and it's strong, and it's worn, and it's going to hold up. And the second bridge is made out of Charmin toilet paper. And there's someone standing above the Charmin toilet paper bridge saying, I have 100% units faith that this Charmin toilet paper bridge will hold me. But they walk on the bridge and what happens? It's going to fall. I don't think there's any amount of Charmin toilet paper you could build a bridge out of that would hold my body up for sure. Some of yours more so, perhaps. What's the alternative? Then the person on the other bridge is saying, I have very little faith that this bridge will hold me. Maybe I only have 1%, one unit of faith. I barely, I'm still terrified. I don't even think it will do it. But it doesn't matter how little your faith is. If you're placing your faith in the correct object, that object will hold. Oh, Jesus, thank you for being worthy of our faith, whether it's one unit or a hundred units, that we can place our faith in you. And all that will happen is that you will help us to realize you are worthy of our faith. You are worthy. Help us to bring our humble faith to you so that you can marvel at it. Help us to look to you so you can be the producer and sustainer of our faith. Because we all know, those of us who are believers in Jesus, whatever that thing is, right? For Noah, it's a heart transplant. For me, it's still some lingering issues. Praise the Lord, they're so much better for my ears. But everyone in this room, everyone in the uh, patio parishioners, I'm trying to make that one stick, everyone watching online, whatever it is, everyone has these things. Let's take them to Jesus with humble faith, like the centurion, but ultimately, rather than trying to convince ourselves to be someone, we say, you know what, at the end of the day, what do I do? I just, I shift my focus to Jesus because he is worthy and he will meet me where I need him to. Thank you. Let's pray to that end. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, oh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the centurion. We thank you for uh, faith. We thank you that whatever issue we're currently mindful of right now, that you've already taken our worst problem away from us, those of us who have trusted you. You've already removed our sin as far as the east is from the west. And that is by far our biggest problem. You've already taken care of that. And on top of that, you love us. You're our Father. And you want to give us good things. You want to provide for us here and now in this day, on this planet, and in this life, not merely in the after, but even now. And I pray that you would give us a bold, presumptuous faith that seeks after your promises and trusts you with faith and humility. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.